for you? Did you wake up this morning with uh, praise on your mind and on your lips and just blessing God for another day that he's given us as a gift from him to get up to serve him? I would hope and pray that every day that we get up, we realize what a gift it is from God to be here in order to serve him and that we come to him with an attitude of praise and thanksgiving and a, and a heart that says, you know what, here I am, Lord, today I'm here reporting to duty for duty. What is it that you'll have me to do for you? Let's pray. Father, we're just, uh, we are amazed at your great love for us, and we don't even begin to comprehend it, but your word clearly teaches its truth. And so we come before you today in a spirit of humility and humbleness, in awe of who you are. We come with a, a blessing on our lips and praise continually in our mind. And Lord, we just ask that you uh, receive that praise to your glory, that you receive even the gifts that we give, uh, give back to you, the resources from which you've given us to honor you. We pray right now that our hearts will be still and that they would be open. Uh, Our minds would be open to receive your word and the truth that you would have for each one of us so that we can make application uh, in our daily lives. And may you get all the glory and praise in Christ's name. Amen. The story is told of uh, a, a pastor, a doctor, and an engineer who were all out golfing one morning, and while waiting for a particularly slow group of golfers in front of them, the engineer fumed and said, what's, what's with these guys? We must have been waiting 15 minutes on every hole so far. I don't understand what their problem is. The doctor chimed in. He said, I don't know either, but I've never seen such nonsense, man. They're driving around in circles. They're driving this way, that way. They're driving back towards the tee box. It's like they don't even know where they're going or what they're looking for. And the pastor said, well, you know what? Here comes the marshal. Let's have a word with him. And as the marshal approached, he said, sir, you know, what's with the group ahead of us? They're rather slow, aren't they? And the marshal replied, well, yeah, they are, but uh, that's a group of uh, firefighters. Uh, And every one of them lost their sight, saving our clubhouse from a fire last year, so we always let them play for free any time they want to play. And at at that, the group was, you know, stunned, and they were silent, and they thought for a moment, and the pastor said, you know what, I'm I'm so sorry to hear that. I I think tonight I'll say a special prayer for them, and I'll also ask God to forgive my bad attitude. And the doctor said, you know what, that's a good idea. Not only will I do that, but I'll go to an ophthalmologist friend of mine and see if they'll, that he'll see them and if there's anything to do that maybe can help them restore their sight. And the engineer, having heard this, he took it in and he thought himself for a couple of minutes. He said, well, then, you know what, let me ask you something. Why can't these guys just play at night? <laughs> you know, and, and there's just that certain element where many times in life we use being practical as our excuse for being insensitive, at times for lacking compassion, and at other times for lacking a trust in the Lord. You know, and uh, as we resume our study through Luke's gospel, we come to such a moment in the lives of the apostles. And if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 9, you know, we're going to find at this particular occasion the apostles not understanding the kingdom of God. And what's interesting and ironic about it is they didn't understand the kingdom of God, the very kingdom of God that they were to be sent out. They were being sent out to proclaim. And we find these words for us in Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 1. It says, And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey. Neither staff nor bag, nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. 
And whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from the from there. And he says, as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. It says, in departing, they began going among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. And taking them with him, he withdrew, from, withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. And the multitudes were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And the day began to decline, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in this desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For these men were about five thousand. And he said to his disciples, Have them recline to eat in groups of about fifty. And they did so, and had them all recline. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which had been left over were picked up, and twelve baskets were filled." In this passage, we're going to examine four things that relate to the kingdom of God. You'll see them in outline form if you've got your bulletin there. Says, and, and we're looking, first of all, we're going to see the commission by Jesus of the 12 apostles to go out and proclaim that God's kingdom was at hand and attainable to all those who would favorably respond upon this invitation of God. The second thing we'll learn of is that of the confusion in the heart of one man, specifically Herod, who did not comprehend who Jesus is or what it was that that he was teaching. Thirdly, we'll look at the conclusion of their journey, what they learned and, and what the Jesus recommended. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at uh, the compassion of Jesus as he viewed the multitudes compared in stark contrast to that of the 12 that had returned. And it's an interesting outline as we look at it, and there's much practical application for you and me. So first of all, let's look at the commission by Jesus to the 12 apostles. If you'll notice in verse 1, it says that he called the 12 together. We're told that Jesus had called the 12 apostles together, whom he had chosen earlier and ordained months before. If you'll recall from our, our message in Luke chapter 6, out of the countless numbers of disciples, Disciples that were following Jesus. Jesus clearly chose 12 men and, and he had called these 12. They had lived with him for many months now. They've traveled with him and they became his helpers and his closest uh, companions. And now Jesus was going to send these 12 out, as it were, to apply the things that they had been learning. He was going to send them out in twos or in pairs to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. And they were going to begin to get a feel for what their future mission was after Jesus returns to heaven. And as we look at this, you ask the question, well, what was it specifically that they were instructed by Jesus to do? And when we look, he's telling us that he gave them power and authority over all demons to heal diseases. And when we look at the word power and authority, it's important to recognize and understand that power is the ability to get a job done. 
And authority is the right to do the job. And power without the proper authority is nothing short of abuse. For a person to exercise power and they have no authority, it's nothing more than abusiveness. It becomes dictatorial in approach. And it's important that you recognize and I recognize that as Jesus sends out his followers, he gives us both the power, the ability to get the job done, and the authority. If you recall, even through casual reading through your Bible, you'll learn many times where, uh, for example, Moses uh, said to to God, who shall I say sent me? You're telling me to go to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let your people go. By whose authority am I doing this? And he said, tell him I am. By the authority of Jehovah God, you go tell him to let those people go. Nehemiah, if you recall in the study of the book of Nehemiah, when he wants to go and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, he has to get permission in order to go and to get the materials that he needs. Who shall I say sent me? Here's the signet ring or the seal of the king. I've given you the permission to do it. And what's wonderful about this is is that you and I have a unique position in this world because we have been given the authority and the power to go out and do what it is that God calls each one of us individually and collectively as His church to do in this world. He has given us the power and He has given us the authority because all authority has been granted to Him. If you recall the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me. And now I send you out into the world. And as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always till the ends of the age. So we have a very unique assignment in that you and I are sent out with the authority of God and the power that enables us to get the job done that He has sent us to do. In this particular case, when you look at the 12 that are sent out, we ask the question, what was it that they were to do? What were the activities that they were to pursue? And we see very clearly that they were sent out in verse 2 to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. These activities are twofold. Number one, I will call it heralding and healing. Herald, a herald is a person who is a representative of a king. And his purpose is to go out and merely pronounced the message that he was sent to tell. So as they were going out, he says, you're to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. You're to be the herald of the king. You're to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. That is your responsibility. And secondly, they were to heal, and both of these things were to work in conjunction. The first thing I want to concentrate on is that they were out there to proclaim the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, he uses the word the kingdom of heaven. If you remember from last message, John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, uh, you know, what must one do in order to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, you know what, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And so they went out to proclaim the kingdom of God was at hand. They went out to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And we learn clearly in verse 6, what is that? Well, verse 6 tells us, when they left, they began going among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So we're told in the text what it meant to proclaim the gospel, what it meant to proclaim the kingdom of God. What it meant to proclaim the kingdom of God was at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was to merely proclaim the gospel. And the gospel means good news. What was the good news that they were instructed to go out and proclaim to the world? It's important that we understand that instruction because that's the same thing that we're instructed to do, to go into all the earth and proclaim the good news of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
what is the gospel or good news that God wants men to know? First and foremost, He wants us to know, all men to know, that He is God. That He exists. That He is sovereign. That He is a ruler over all of the universe. That He is the ruler over and reigns over all things. And all things are under His control. One of the greatest misconceptions of our culture is that there is no God. Or another misconception is that there are many gods. And you can pick and choose whichever one you want that will fit into your particular lifestyle. And the reality of it is, it's very simple. It's been this way since the day of man has been created. Hear, O Israel, and know this is a fact. There is but one God. There is only one God, and it's not even our idea of that one God because he clearly identifies himself to mankind. So they were to go out and say, there is, there is a God. He does exist. He reigns over all the universe, and every person is accountable to him. The good news expresses itself even further where these men were sent out to preach the kingdom of God, declare its availability to all men, and to tell all men that they were in it and that they should come into it. To tell men that they existed in the kingdom of God, but they could not realize or see its benefits unless they turned back to God in repentance. The reality is this. The kingdom of God is all around us. Some will say, well, the kingdom of God, when Jesus establishes kingdom here on earth for a thousand year reign, that's true. That is the kingdom of God. But what about today? What about yesterday? What about the day before? What about even before he created you and I? In the beginning, God existed. His reign, his kingdom has always existed. And the good news is that we can go out and tell people that God reigns, he's under control, and he wants you and me to experience in an intimate, personal way the reign of God. He's saying to Nicodemus, who existed in the, in the kingdom of God, he couldn't see God's kingdom. He was blind to his kingdom. He couldn't hear God's voice because he was deaf to God's voice. He told Nicodemus, unless one is what? Born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. And so the reality is, the good news is very simple, that you and I can come into a relationship with the God of the universe, the very God who created us, the one who's in control of everything, by doing what? By repenting. By turning from sin and turning back to God. By having a change in heart of mind as far as who we think God is. Oh, we can pick and choose a God. No, there's only one God. You have to have a change of heart and mind about that attitude. You have to have a change of heart and mind about your own personal self-worth or goodness. Because the Bible says none of us are good. No, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. I was talking to a gentleman this morning. He said that, you know, he was dealing... In fact, he's working at a women's correctional institution, a prison. And he said the thing that's been so mind-boggling to him is that when he sees the women that come in, that, that he's involved in the counseling, uh, he, he looks at them and says, but you know what, they, they don't look any different than you would see somebody at, at the grocery store or at church or, or at school or at the PTA. I look at these people and I go, wow, you know, and then they begin to tell the story how, you know, they, they took a hatchet and chopped somebody up or, or, or they did this, that or the other thing and you kind of go, wow. And you go, well, wait, wait a minute. See, and the reality of it is, is that's the truth because God sees you and I as we truly are. And His Word warns us that, you know what, sin dwells in any one of us and at any given moment we can express ourselves in a way that's not pleasing to God. Whether it's our thought life, whether it's our actions, whether it's a moment in time, somebody goes, oh, they snapped, oh, they, that's not the guy that I knew at work. He was a loving father, a loving husband. I don't understand. I'm blown away that, you know, that he would kill his, his wife or his children. It just doesn't make any sense. 
Or he was always careful. I can't understand, you know, how he was speeding or drunk driving and he killed himself and these people. It's like, I don't understand it. Well, the reason we don't understand it is because we have been conditioned in our culture to think that we're better, we're better than we really are. And we've got to get back to the Word of God that tells us none of us are righteous, no, not one, and sin indwells all of us. And that's why David wrote in Psalm 51, I was conceived in iniquity in my mother's womb, was I conceived and I came forth as a sinner before God. That's why David sinned. That's why David chose to murder. That's why David chose to become an adulterer. That's why David fell short of God's glory. The same reason that you and I do, because there is nothing good in any of us. And we need to have a real awakening about that. And if we're to see the kingdom of God, experience God's presence in our life, we have got to repent, which means turn from sin and turn to God. And every one of us must repent at some point in our life and we will never see the kingdom of God, which is right around us, which is everywhere to be seen and to be heard. We're to repent, but we're to do more than that. We're to respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ. God identifies his plan to redeem us or buy us back from that lost and hopeless condition that we're in. He's saying, I loved you and I sent my son. His name is Jesus. And he shall save his people from their sins. He is Jesus the Christ. And he died on a cross for you and for me. And he rose again from the dead, conquering sin, conquering the devil, conquering that sin nature that we have. And for those who respond by God's grace through faith to the finished work of Christ and have received Him as our Lord and Savior, we become children of God to those who believe in His name. And guess what? We see the kingdom of God all around us. How can you and I see God's presence in everything, and many people in the world we live in can't see Him in anything? How can you and I hear His voice through His Word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our heart when other people can do the most heinous things and not have any sense of remorse or guilt or conviction about it? The reality of it is because they're dead in their sins. They're dead to God. They're alive to Satan. They're alive to sin. They're not alive to God. They don't have the Spirit's presence in their life. But you and I who have repented of sin and responded by grace through faith to Christ's death on the cross, His resurrection, and received Him as our Savior, that moment in time we're born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts, and we become alive to God. We see Him everywhere where we, we never saw Him anywhere. We hear His voice, His conviction, the presence of the Spirit of God in our life saying, don't do that. But, but God, I always did that. Well, you don't do that no more. And then why do those things that we used to do all the time and never bothered us now bother us? And we go, wait a minute. Why? Because now we're alive to God. And we're living in His kingdom when we see His presence everywhere around us. They were to go out and proclaim that that kingdom is available to all who will call upon the name of the Lord. You and I have wonderful invitation to come to the throne room of God and throw ourselves on His mercy and trust in Christ's death on the cross and the power of His resurrection, receive Him as our Savior, and we are adopted as children of God into God's family. And we can now see the kingdom of God. We can now hear the voice of God. And the rest of the world is still wandering in blindness and darkness and deafness to his very voice, and you know what our responsibility is? To proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, Jesus, John the Baptist, all the prophets, they, they always started their preaching by saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is God's desire of all men, according to Acts 17? That, they, that we all repent. 
that we have a change of heart and mind about who God is, about ourselves, about everything, and we believe what he says and has, has shown us in his word. We're to lift him up. We're to declare with authority the name of Jesus. We're to boast in him and nobody else. All authority has been given to us. Who are we to tell people about Jesus? We are God's messengers with his power and his authority, and no one can stop us. We're here to tell people about Jesus. We're here to lift his name up before men. We're here to tell people there's no other way to heaven but through Jesus. Any other idea, any any other inkling, any other game plan, any other strategy will continue to lead people on the road that we come into this world, and that's the road to hell and, and eternal condemnation. And there's only one who can save us from that ultimate fate, and he's Jesus. We're to lift his name up. When we come and we worship, we're to focus on him and worship him and praise his name. And you'll notice that those who came a little later, we've got the the door shut. And when the worship service is in progress, this is a new year, and we're going to break some old habits around here. And if you're late, then you'll stay outside until we're done worshiping and praising the Lord, and then you can come on in. But we have got to stop visiting and talking and, and, and uh, you know, sharing with one another. We've got plenty of time for fellowship. We've got time to do that. When we walk in here, we're going to praise his name. We're going to lift him up. And our hearts are going to be right before God. And we're going to focus on him, not one another. We're here to praise his name. And so I'll just encourage you to come on time. Because the moment the service starts is the moment that we start to praise his name and to lift him up. For those who come late, you'll be locked out until we let you in. And you know what? And you don't like it, then come on time. Because, I, you know, I hope you understand that we're here to praise Him and to lift Him up. And it troubles me when I hear people leading us in praise and worship and I hear people talking and visiting and joking. And, and that's my fault. Because I'm here to help instruct how to worship and praise our Savior. And so I take that personal, and I take personal responsibility for that. And we're going to change that by God's grace through faith. Amen? Amen. Good. Now, the interesting thing is, is that we get back to... Um, now, some of you would be like, amen, let's just quit right there. That's good. We're just like... But, but we're not going to because there's so much more. And so notice that he says, and he's to pro, they were to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. It's important to recognize that the validation for their message and that they were indeed God's messengers was that Jesus gave them the authority and the power over demons and to heal diseases. And this ability to heal was a special gift that was given to authenticate their ministry. There was no other way to know whether a person was truly sent by God than the fruit or the evidence of their life. And so Jesus, by this time, and, and, and everyone was talking about it, Jesus was one who could cast out the demons. Jesus was one who had control over the elements, nature, the weather, the, the waves, the sea. Jesus was one who had control over even, even the most heinous of all diseases. And so it makes sense that Jesus would say, when I send you out, I will give you the power and the authority to do that which I can do so that those who see what you do will know you were sent by me. And the reason this is so important is because there's much confusion in our culture today. And it's important that we recognize and understand that the miracles that they did, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul writes of the signs that they did that affirmed and validated. Romans 15, the same thing. Hebrews 12, that the signs that they did validated their message and the one who sent them out with the message. 
Now, miracles were one evidence that the Lord had sent them out and was working with them. But, you know, Mark 16, 20 tells us that the word spoken through the apostles was confirmed by these signs. Now, today we test a person's ministry by the truth of God's word. We examine the completed word of God to test if what is being proclaimed is truly of God. The word of God is complete. We've got everything that we need. You know, John writes in, in his epistles at the, at the back of the book, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he writes that the, that, that the validation for message, a message today, comes by examining and checking the word of God. And as the age of the apostles began to fade, so did the need for those gifts. And anyone who would argue differently, my simple reasoning or logic as we look at this, not only does the word of God tell us this, but I want you to think about something. Paul, as an apostle, had been given the authority and the power by God to be able to do certain healings. As the word of God became complete, there was no need for those healings because now we had God's word in written form. If they still had it, then why couldn't Paul heal himself? In 2 Corinthians 12, he had an affliction, a thorn in the flesh he couldn't heal. When he wrote to Timothy, he said, you know what, take a little wine for your stomach because of the stomach ailment that you had. Well, if Paul could heal at that point, why didn't he heal his friend? Trophimus, the same thing, another good friend of his. He left at Miletus because he was ill and ill to the point of death. And he, didn't, he couldn't do anything for him either. There was a need at a certain time to validate the message. And Jesus said, I give you the power and authority so that when you go out and do what you do, they will know that you have been sent by me. Now, also, there's confusion because in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, you know, these people come to him and say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? He said, hey, you know what? You never even knew me, and I don't know you. And so there are those who could do miraculous things, and the warning of Scripture, thank God that he has given this in written form, the warning is that the devil can disguise himself as an angel of light. And you've got to check not only the act or the miracle, but what is the message that is being projected as well. And so often is the case where people today, we see healings of all sort. And don't get me wrong and don't take it out of context. I believe that God still heals today. I believe that, but he doesn't have to use people to do it. Because his methods, it methods and his message is already authenticated in the word of God. I believe that God heals. I believe he uses doctors. I believe he uses nurses. I believe he uses medicine. I believe he uses a, an array of ways to heal us. And at the end of the day, he gets all the glory and praise because anybody that's any kind of medical technician or physician or nurse or anything knows, you know what? There are some people that die that they think shouldn't. There are people that live they should, think should be dead. And why does God do that? It's just so we all recognize there's only one God and we are under his reign and under his control and the kingdom of God is at hand and available to all who will receive that invitation. So as we go through and we look at this, these sign gifts were no longer necessary, but they served an important point because as, as Scripture became a part of the church, the gift of healing passed, the authority moved from a person or persons to the page of Scripture. And toward the end of John's life, he warned that correct doctrine was a man's true credential. When he wrote these words in 2 John 10, he said, If there come any into you and bring not this doctrine, right here, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Paul said that, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The word is anathema. In English, it's be damned. 
Let him be damned before God that he would mislead anyone as to the road to heaven. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is God's plan to redeem man to himself. And there is no other name under heaven, no other authority given to man by the, but the name of Jesus. And we're here to lift him up. We're here to praise his name. One last thing before we move on is that notice the attitude that they're supposed to have in verses 3 through 5. We're told, and he said to them, take nothing with you on your journey, neither staff nor bag nor, nor bread nor money, and don't have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. And, and he's saying that, you know what, I, I want to send you out, and I want you to recognize and understand that I am in control of everything. If you're to preach the kingdom of God, that God reigns and he's in control of everything, then you know what, you need to trust that. And so these men still didn't trust that. And he was saying, you know what, you're going to go out with nothing else but my authority and the power that I give you and the abilities that you're going to have to perform these miracles, and I'm going to show you how I can meet every need that you have. You just go out, and I'll raise up people all around you who will take care of you to prove to you that I'm in control of everything. Have a sense of urgency. Don't trust your bank account. Don't trust your abilities. You just trust and you, you depend upon me. And that's why I sent them out. And he also said, when you go to a house, if they don't receive you, then you know what? Do the most loving thing that anybody can do. As you walk out, take off your sandals, dust them off in front of them because the Jews understood that when they went to Gentile land, before they walked on Jewish soil, they would take off their shoes, they would dust it off so that there was no dirt from pagan lands on their feet to defile the the, the land that God had given them. And the question that I ask is a very interesting question that I had in my own mind about, well, you know what? Isn't that the most loving thing that we can do with those who will not receive the gospel message to warn them of the seriousness of that rejection? Isn't that the most loving thing that you can do is to warn somebody that, no, you know what, what you believe is not accurate. Not all roads lead to heaven. Not all religion systems or belief systems will get you to where you think you're going to go. There's only one way. It's God's way, God's Son, His death, his resurrection, and you turning from sin and turning to him and receiving him as Savior. Otherwise, you know what? You're damned before God for all of eternity. Now, we live in a culture that says, oh, let everybody believe whatever it is that they want to believe. Let's not offend anybody because it's so exclusive. And that's the biggest nonsense that's being generated in our culture, and that's this. Every belief system is exclusive. Period. If you are an, a, a, an advocate of Islam, then you know what? There's no room for a Christian mentality. If you're an advocate of Judaism, there's no room for Islam. If you're an advocate of whatever it is that you believe, it is exclusive unto itself. Now, the devil's going to come along, and as the Word of God teaches, there'll be a day where we're going to come up with this religious system that we're going to throw away everything that bothers each other about what we believe and try to figure out a way to come up with one world belief system that doesn't offend any longer. But Jesus said that the cross is an offense, that God's way is an offense to man. Why? Because it reveals the heart of man that we're wicked before God, we hate him, we're at enmity with God, and we don't want God telling us what to do. Don't tell us there's only one way to heaven. We'll find another way despite you. Oh, how stupid is that? But that's the heart of man. And that's, you know, think about anybody who's living any kind of sinful life, anybody who stands back objectively and looks at, man, that's really stupid, isn't it? Well, sure it is. But when you're blind to what you're doing, you don't even see the consequences of it. 
in my earlier conversation, we talked about the fact that, you know what, the devil wants to come along and remind us of all the good things that came along with our sinful lifestyle. Don't you miss those things. And I always pray, God, remember all the consequences that came with that package too. Because, you know what, you know, there's that, that Lord to get us to go back to things that we think that we're missing as if God isn't replacing those things with something better. Don't buy into the lie. Remember the consequences and the pain and the heartache and the misery that came with the sin package. And you'll praise God when you wake up every day that you're no longer there anymore, but you are right where he has you. So they were warning them. They were warning them, they were telling them, they were commissioned to proclaim the kingdom of God was at hand. And it was available to all who would repent, respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, and receive him as Savior, and to lovingly warn those who rejected God's love to reconsider that before it was too late. To reconsider what it is you think you believe before it's too late. See, in their message... God's message is what we are to proclaim today. And my prayer and my hope is that we develop a greater sense of urgency and a total dependency on the Lord as we enter this new year of opportunity. He has equipped us and empowered us to accomplish the task is at hand. And that's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, Come unto me, any one of you, who are weary laden, and I will give you rest. What was the effect of the apostles' ministries as Christ worked through them? Notice the confusion that we see in verses 7 through 9 of Herod. Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening. He was greatly perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And by some Elijah had appeared. And others that another prophet had risen. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. And when you get a chance, read Mark's account in Mark chapter 6. The gruesome account of the murder of John the Baptist. In Mark 6 verses 14 through 29, Mark records this account of how Herod, because of Herodias, uh, had John the Baptist murdered and beheaded because John in love came to him and said, I just want to let you know the relationship that you have today is a sin before God. It is adultery. You took your brother's wife and you are guilty before God. And it's just one other example of how God knows that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you know what? And Herod was convicted by it. Herod was troubled by it. Herod was perplexed by it because he couldn't understand John's love for him that he would warn him of the coming judgment of God. We need to have a whole new thought process that when you go to somebody and you tell them that they're, they're sinners or that they're guilty before God, we do it, we speak the truth, but we do it in love because we're warning them that they are going to be judged eternally by God if they don't trust in Christ as their Savior. Herod was perplexed. He couldn't understand why anybody even cared enough to share that with him, yet confront him. And what really perplexed him was, are you crazy confronting me? Do you know what I could do to you? I can fire you, says your boss. I cannot be friends with you anymore, says your friend. I have some control over you and you're risking that happening to you. I don't understand. What's wrong with you? Hey, because I love you and I'm concerned for your spiritual well-being. See, John confronted him. John got sent into prison because of it. John lost his head over it. But you know what? John honored God by sharing the message he was told to go out and proclaim. 
And he's reaping his rewards today, even as we speak and as we sit here. You know, it's a wonderful thing when you realize that, you know, Herod was confused and, and, and his confusion did not lead him to repentance. It led him to curiosity. Because notice this. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man? And right there is the principle I want to share with you. All of the activity of the apostles led to one focus and one focus only. It wasn't on them. It was on Jesus. He heard about everything that was going on. But he recognized, who is this man who sent these other men out? It doesn't matter what they're doing or what they're accomplishing. Because it all went back to the one who sent him out, them out. It all goes back to Jesus. So as you and I go out into the world and God does great things through us because of our availability and willingness to be used by God, the focus isn't on us or what we've done because we haven't done anything that God hasn't empowered us to do. The focus is all on Him. We lift Him up. We praise His name. We give Him glory because we can't do anything without Him. All the focus of Herod was on Jesus, and rightfully so. And all of our focus must be on Jesus as well. The principle is this. No matter what you and I do in our service for our God, at the end of the day, He must get all the glory and He must get all the praise. So that you understand, we've had many conversations with those who are involved in leading worship. And one of the greatest concerns that I have about anything is that we are not the focal point But He is. Those who lead us in worship, lead us in worship. They lead us to participate with them as they praise God. We praise with them the same God. We're not here to be spectators, to watch a performance or to watch a show like we would in the secular world. We're to be led by those who have a heart that's right before God, who want to praise His name in worship. And we're to worship with them the same God that they praise. And my prayer and my hope is that any time that I speak from this pulpit, that, that every time people walk out of here, they're thinking about one thing and one thing only, one person and one person only, and that is Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Has He healed your soul? Has He touched your life? Do you know Him? I don't care if you ever know my name, but I want you to know the name of Jesus because He's the only one that can save you from your sins. Now, The conclusion of this, as we put this all together, uh, from the trip is in verse 10, it says, And when the apostles returned, oh, by the way, you know, just another thought, but it's one thing to be curious about Jesus, and it's another thing to seek him. Herod was curious, and we're told that, you know what, when he finally did get to meet Jesus, that he asked him to do a sign or a trick or a magic show for him. And Jesus said nothing to him and did nothing for him. Because he had already spoke what Herod needed to hear. He had already done what Herod needed to see. And he wasn't going to be commanded by man to do anything. And we're never told in scripture that Herod ever repented of his sin. He was curious, but he wasn't a seeker. And I praise God that God knows who are truly seeking him versus those who are just coming to the show for the curiosity value. May we all seek him with our hearts. And when we do, we will always find him because he is all around us. His kingdom reigns forever. 
Now the conclusion is, they came back and said the apostles returned. They gave an account to him of all that they had done. And taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Can you imagine? That had to be a great time. Oh man, you know, one story after another, what God has done. And I'm telling you right now, there is nothing more exciting in life. I don't care what kind of business deal you closed. I don't care what kind of real estate purchase you made. I don't care what new outfit you got for Christmas. I don't care what the most exciting thing you think happens in your life. There is nothing that compares to seeing God at work in another human life. There is nothing more exciting than to see the dead being raised to life, newness in Christ. There is nothing more exciting than seeing a sinner turn from sin and turn to God and being made into a new person, starting fresh, starting whole, starting from scratch, a new creation in Christ. There is nothing more exciting than that. Because all the rest of this stuff wears off, but you know what? When God does a work, he continues to do it until the day of Christ Jesus. And man, I'll tell you what, I look around and I see we're all works in progress because at a moment in time we repent and God has been molding us and conforming us and shaping us into the image of Jesus. So when people see us, what? They see Jesus. And that's who we're here to represent. We're his ambassadors. And that had to be a great time. Just listen to the stories, what God has done. The only thing that troubles me is it says, and listen to what all they had done. And we're going to see why this is a problem here in a second because now notice this as we look at all of this. And I want you to understand, it says that, you know what, they were tired. They were tired. And Jesus said, you need a break. And they were tired because they were busy doing. And I know a whole bunch of us that are tired because we're busy talking about what we think we might do. And there's a huge difference between the two. All I'll say is this, you're going to be tired for Jesus this year, be tired because you're doing, not because you're talking about maybe doing something. You don't need no rest from just talking about it. Although some of us talk, we got so much energy talking about stuff we might do, that I can see why we're tired. And I'm tired listening to people talk about all the stuff they might do. I just want to see, you know, God working through you doing stuff. Then we all be tired and go, wow, we're tired, but look at all God's done. That's a good way to get tired. I'm tired of telling you about it. <laughs> okay, now let's look at this, and here we go. Notice the compassion of Jesus compared to his disciples in contrast to the apostles. As we look at this, it says in verse 11, and by, the multitudes were aware of this. They wanted to get a little break, and you know what? And the, the, the apostles were tired. They were ready for a little R&R. But, what, but they saw Jesus and the apostles leaving, and the multitudes began to follow. And you know what Jesus did? He welcomed them. He welcomed them. Matthew's account, he says, because he looked at them and saw them and they were like a sheep without a shepherd and he felt compassion for them. He was moved by what he saw. And the multitudes were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them, he began speaking to them, what? About the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you can see the kingdom of God if you are born again. Your eyes will be open to God. Your ears will be unplugged. You'll hear his voice. You'll see what he's doing. And you will see all around you all the things that you had missed up to that point because you were dead in your sins. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preached a lengthy sermon. He cured those who were in need of healing. He told them about the kingdom of God. And as night began to come, and they were all tired. I mean, you know, it was like a long sermon in addition to everything else they were doing. And they came and they got hungry. And notice, the, the, these, these close followers of his, 
who were sent out with nothing and God provided everything for them came back with exciting stories about how God provided and what God did. Then they looked at this multitude of people and they said to Jesus, send them away. Now, I'm thinking they were thinking a little more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They came back from the road trip thinking, you know what? Hey, we, we were 8-0 on the road this year, Lord. And we got a pretty good thing going. You know what? And now we've become your partner. So you send them away. What is wrong with us? And the reason that he said, they said send them away was because they looked and said 5,000 men. There's probably 15,000 people here with women and children. There's a whole bunch of folks and we can't meet their needs. We just got a handful of provisions. We don't have enough to meet their needs. They looked at the crowd. They looked at their resources and they came to the conclusion, and rightly so, we can't do anything to meet their needs. And they came to the right conclusion. But what's interesting about it, you have five loaves, two fish, handful of money, and we're in a desolate area. There's no way we can meet their needs. And notice what Jesus says. He says, you know what? Well, I got a news for you. You give them something to eat. What? I just, are you not listening to us? Lord, are you not listening to us? We just got a handful of things. There's, a, you know, look at all the people out there. He goes, you give them something to eat. And here's the principle. God always loves to ask his people to do the impossible so that we can see we can't do this and then have to trust in him. And then we learn from that situation that he can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ever ask or think or any of us could ever do when we can't do it, he can do it. And when he does it, he gets all the glory and praise, praise his name. And we don't get any of it. We're not sharing in it with him. He will always ask us to do the impossible so that you and I can see we can't do it. And then when he does it, he gets all the praise and glory. Hello? And oh, is that, was he just calling to affirm that uh, that, is, that is the word of God? Amen. Preach it, brother Chuck. You can get up now. <laughs> Just giving you a hard time. That blush goes well with your red hair. So anyway, and the point is this. We can't do anything without him. Amen? Amen. You know what? In the picture this, Jesus said, you give them food. Can you imagine this? They, they go over to him, and Jesus keeps handing them fish. And he keeps handing them loaves of bread. And he keeps handing it to them, keeps handing them to them. It's like, it's like the, the, the car at the circus where the clowns just keep coming out. And they just keep coming out. And then another one, and another one. But, we know, but, but with God, it's not a magic show. With God, it's not smoke and mirrors. With God, it's not a trick. With God, who controls all of the universe and everything in it, when he provides, he provides. And he just kept handing fishes, handing loaves of bread, kept handing them to him, and they kept coming. And he was just doing this. And he goes, look, nothing up my sleeves. I'm God, I can do this. And he kept doing this. Look at this, 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 look at this. And I gotta believe, as they were taking all of it, they were going... And they had them all in groups of 50, and they took them over, and they fed them, and they ate, and they ate, and this group ate, and they all ate, and every one of them ate, and every one of them were stuffed. 
They had never eaten that much before. It was the first version of a buffet that they'd ever seen. And that's where it all started, you know. And they kept eating and eating, and they were full, and it said they were completely satisfied with God's provision in their life. And then there was 12 baskets left over. And i got to believe Jesus had those guys haul that basket, each one of their own baskets, around for a little while so they learned a lesson. You know what I'm saying? Come on, we're going to the next town. Don't forget your basket. And I heard, you know, and you can just see them fighting. It's like, I told you we should have trusted him. You know what? I told you that. You know, you just never trust them, do you? Now, look, we're all in this deal. Pulling basket. And the point is, and they were all satisfied. And so should we be always satisfied, always content. Those who seek God's kingdom, his righteousness, and hunger and thirst for it will be content. There's some precious insight in closing of how God seeks to bring us to maturity. Sometimes he calls us to hard tasks so that we will find out how inadequate we are. As one man writes, he said, It is often our God-given duty to attempt tasks to which we are conspicuously inadequate in the confidence that he who gives them has laid them on us to drive us to himself and there to find our complete sufficiency. The best preparation of his servants for their work in this world is discovery that they are, their own stores are too small to accomplish the task. When we understand that it is our responsibility to feed the multitudes and then to tell him we don't have the resources, then we're ready for his empowerment. We can't reach them, Lord, but you can. We can't convince them, Lord, of their need for your forgiveness, but your spirit can. We can't rotor till that hard heart that we have for years thrown seed upon, but you can till it up. We can't do any of this, but you can do it all. We can't build your church because it's not about human effort, but we know the gates of hell will not prevail against it because you can do what we can't do. He wants to do the extraordinary through the ordinary so that he gets all the glory. This church is but one example of God doing the extraordinary through nothing more than just ordinary men and women who are committed to serving Him, who are committed to trust in Him, who are committed to loving Him with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength and to follow His lead and direction. We can't do any of this. But if we walk with Him and trust in Him and depend upon His resources the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and his convicting power, then we can do extraordinary things for his sake and for his glory. And I'm so excited to be part of what God's doing. Why don't you allow him to do something extraordinary in your life this year? And all you need to do is be available. All you need to do is say, here I am, Lord, send me. All you need to do is say, God, you have gifted me with some gift to serve you. I don't know what it is, but reveal it to me. And we'll help to find that place where he wants you to serve. Because where he wants us to serve, he always gives us a passion and a desire. And then giftedness, if we're willing to be disciplined 
to exercise that gift and to develop it in his glory and his praise. One of the most amazing things as I read through scripture and I thought about this feeding of the multitudes, Jesus' response was reminiscent of 2 Kings chapter 4 where Elisha was told, you give these men something to eat. And in 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44, Elisha is commanding his servant to feed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread and God miraculously provided. He says, a man from Baal came bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. And he said, give it to the people to eat. And Elisha said, how can I set this before a hundred men? He's not going to feed 100 hungry men. And his servant said, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of God. You know, everything that Jesus did was to reach not only the Jews, but all people, to help them to understand that he is God in human flesh. The Jehovah power of God. So remember when Elisha gave bread to those hungry men and it continued to multiply? I'm here doing the same thing today. The same God that multiplied that bread today is the same God who stands before you and multiplies this bread today. John's account says in John 6 that Jesus went on and preached a sermon. And the sermon was, I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And if you will believe in me and you will trust in me, and you will come to me, I will forgive your sins. He said, you're following me because I fed you. And you're blind to spiritual things, and all you think about is the physical. The woman at the well, give me that water so I never have to go to the well to drink anymore. Jesus said, you're thinking in the physical. The people that followed him, you're thinking in the physical. You think I'm just going to give you fish and loaves to eat the rest of your life, and you never have to eat, and you're thinking in the physical. I ask you to come to me and think in the spiritual. I ask you to trust in me, to come to me. I'm the bread of life, which has come down out of heaven, and if you will receive me and believe in me, you shall be saved. Because if you eat of my bread that I have to offer, you will never be hungry again, and your eyes will be opened, and your ears will hear the very word of God. And the, and the message that he's giving them and us is this. We must be completely satisfied with his provision. And it starts with our salvation. There is nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else to turn. And as God provided manna in the wilderness before they entered the promised land, the manna stopped. As Jesus stood anticipating and looking forward to the day that he would die on the cross. And those people were in town for Passover. He gave them bread. And that bread would stop physically before he would go to the cross, be raised from the dead, and say, if you come to me, I will give you life everlasting. And not only should our salvation find its sufficiency in Christ and in nothing that we do and in nobody else, all of our life's sufficiency is found in him. For those who have come to faith in Christ, he wants you and I to live an abundant life. He wants you to be whole in every area. He wants your marriage to honor God. He wants your personal life to honor God. He wants your financial life to honor God. He wants to make you whole in every area. And we must go to him and trust in him for our complete sufficiency is in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We praise you. We come with a mind that is here in an attitude of praise and worship. We thank you that you loved us and you gave your only son to die on the cross 
in our place for our sins. Our mind is just boggled by such a sacrifice. And you raised him up three days later, demonstrating he is who he claimed to be, the very Savior of the world. The grave could not hold him. The devil was destroyed at that moment in time. You are the God of the universe who reigns. God, I pray for those who can't see you now and can't hear your voice, that they would seek you with all their heart because you're not far from any one of us. You tell us that those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved from the consequences of sin. I pray for those who are here and listening to these words, that they would repent, they would turn from sin to turn to God, and that they would trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection and receive Him as their Lord and Savior, becoming children of God to those who believe in His name. And God, for all of us who have come into that family of yours, that relationship with you, adopted by you into your family, I just pray that as this year comes about, that every day we wake up reporting to duty because we are most blessed by you and you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.